This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. If you used to listen to this podcast on the bus or the train to work, well, you're probably listening now on your daily government walk around the park instead. Remember, listeners, no socialising. COVID-19 is causing the biggest shakeup in transport in over 30 years, with huge bailouts, U-turns and financial crunches piling up as passenger numbers plummet. In London alone, we've seen the fate of TfL kicked into next year and supposedly essential Crossrail 2 shelved indefinitely. Meanwhile, national rail franchising, once sacrosanct, has died a quiet death. How will transport change after the pandemic? And can we afford the investment that we used to take for granted? To talk about this, I'm joined today by Christian Walmar, the award-winning transport writer and broadcaster. He's written 20 books on the subject, including Our Trans Socialist, Why Britain Has No Transport Policy. Among other things, he describes himself as a driverless car sceptic. Hello, Christian. How are you doing? Hi there. I'm doing very well, thank you. About working from home. (laughs) <laughs> are we all these days it is the uh yeah the spirit of the times so but um let's start with the big one today um as per your book are trams actually socialist and why does britain have no transport policy that we can discern uh no trams are not socialist i mean uh where are there more trams than anywhere else in switzerland which can hardly be described as a, a socialist country so i i i wrote that provocative title precisely to make the point that transport should be a cross-party issue and not one that is associated with uh, the left or the right. Because what is more sensible than ensuring that more people are on public transport, that there is less congestion, uh, it's much more sustainable, rather than everybody in their individual cars, which causes both pollution and congestion. And so uh, that should be really uh, an accepted idea across the political spectrum. So the answer is very strongly, no, trams are not socialist. They're basically a no-brainer. And to the second part of the uh, question, when we look at sort of the big take step back, why does Britain seem to have no coherent worked out transport policy? And are we uncommon from, say, our European neighbours in this? Yes, we are. They mostly have at least a notion of uh, a a transport policy, which generally would favour public transport. I mean, look at France, where 25 towns and cities have uh, tram systems and they're still developing them and they see that as kind of the future. Whereas we've always been uh, car oriented and we've always tried to argue that, well, the car is uh, the, the passport to freedom. We can't constrain its use, but we'll throw in a few buses and trains here and there. We'll spend a bit on this and that. 
but essentially transport should be solved by all of us getting in cars. Now, that's not explicit, but just look at the policy. For example, for 10 years, we haven't had any increase in uh, uh, fuel duty, whereas over the last uh, uh, 10 years, we've had above inflation, uh, rail fare increases, buses have become prohibitively expensive to the people who use them, which is mainly uh, not very well off people and so on. And we've never actually had a, a, a transport minister or transport secretary who's got up and made a, a coherent case for why we should move towards more sustainable forms of transport, except for one. And that surprising is John Prescott, um, who, bless his cotton socks, in uh, the year 2000 did actually set out uh, a vision to have lots more tram schemes to improve bus networks and so on and got roundly crushed by what he called were the teeny boppers in uh, number 10, who uh, absolutely uh, were aghast at the idea that we would be threatening the motoring lobby and, and, and putting uh, their freedom to drive anywhere at any cost uh, in jeopardy. You, um, you wrote the book we were discussing there in 2016, which obviously now feels like it may as well be two centuries ago. Um, setting aside the ongoing issue of the lockdown, are we generally at a turning point for transport in Britain because of the pandemic? Has that caused it or has it just brought forward a reckoning that was in the post, as it were? Slightly the latter, but mostly the former. I mean, uh, we have been absolutely forced into a complete uh, new world. And, and you said for the 30 years in your introduction, actually, I think it's unprecedented. I mean, rail usage, you know, actually fell to 5% of what it was last year. And even before this second lockdown, it recovered to around uh, 30%, 35%, but was nowhere near where it was before. Whereas, you know, occasionally I drive my uh, grandson around London it's about the only time I use a car to, to his various sporting activities, and the traffic is absolutely horrendous. And so we've ended up in this kind of disastrous position whereby people have been put off using public transport through uh, fear of catching the disease and through government injunctions telling them not to use it. Well, in fact, actually, in reality, the risk of public trans of catching COVID on public transport is very low, and they're all charging in their cars. Uh, where if you have more than one person in a car, it's like a perfect place to, to transmit it. So if we can wind the clock back slightly and go to before to before the pandemic hit, is it possible to sum up what our transport philosophy was at that point? And was there anything we were getting right and what were we particularly getting wrong? Well, you mentioned it was very car-centric, but beyond that, were there any sort of key uh, identifiers? Well... There were, of course. I mean, uh, you know, I haven't mentioned cycling and, and there was lots of encouragement of cycling. There was uh, obviously some investment in, in, in railways and trains. Uh, you know, the, the coaches themselves are, are much better than they were 20, 30 years ago. Comfort, uh, speed, more electric trains and so on. But what there lacks is any strategy to move towards a, a better place because whenever you started getting people saying, well, yes, more people ought to cycle. You then get this fantastic kind of opposition. And, you know, we, we've seen this indeed in the post-pandemic uh, situation where uh, there has been this encouragement of low traffic neighbourhoods. Now, what are low traffic neighbourhoods? 
They're basically blocking off through routes in residential areas, pushing more people onto the main uh, roads and creating a much better environment, both uh, in terms of pollution, in terms of uh, safety for walking and cycling in residential areas. Now, it so happens that I live in one that was established 30 years ago. Um, I'm looking out on a very quiet road as a result. But somehow this has caused so much kind of uh, political controversy that now you know some local authorities are retreating from creating these zones and, and so on. And yes, some of them have been slightly poorly designed. But essentially, they are about the sort of transport policy that has existed in Holland for about 30, 40 years. Lots of other uh, towns and cities around the world have adopted those policies because essentially uh, it's got worse recently because residential streets are used as rat runs by uh, sat-navs and and the like of ways and whatever. And uh, so we need to reverse that trend. And yet it's fraught with controversy. And what I said at the beginning about the fact that transport really ought to be a, a politically neutral area where we're all together in moving towards the same goals uh, is the only way forward. But I can't see it, unfortunately, happening. Local transport and commuting, and especially when you get outside of London and South East, seems to be one of those perennially unsexy topics, which nonetheless really matters to voters. And yet governments always seem to underestimate its importance. Why do you think that is? Is it just that politicians get ferried everywhere by car in central London, so don't realise how much it impacts on people's lives in you know, Rotherham and Nottingham if it's four quid to get a bus somewhere and there's one bus every 20 minutes? Uh, yes, I mean, trouble is that in 1986, they deregulated uh, the bus industry and you know, had its faults uh, been regulated because, you know, councillors would kind of ensure that uh, the bus services served their local uh, constituents rather than anybody else. And, and there was that sort of stuff going on. But essentially, in, in, in the intervening uh, 35 years, we've lost really any sense that people ought to have the right to uh, have a bus service wherever they lived, wherever they lived. Now, in, in Switzerland, for example, there's basic rules. So if you have a town of 50,000 people, it has to have a, a sort of half-hourly bus service to the nearest very big town. Or if you live in a village of a few hundred people, you've still got the right to ensure that you have a bus that takes you to the nearest town uh, at least every hour or so. By setting out those sort of rules and standards, you ensure that uh, you have a basic public transport system that enables people not to have to own cars. And we're not quite as bad as America. I mean, in America, essentially, uh, in many towns and cities, if you don't have a car, you can't get around. Well, we're not quite as bad as that. Certainly, it is the case that uh, in many semi-rural and rural areas, having a car is absolutely essential. Of course, not everybody can afford a car, so therefore some people are uh, deprived of, of transport, you know, transport starved. So there's nobody getting up and saying, well, what about uh, trying to help people in uh, rural or semi-rural areas? How about kind of trying to create a, a service for them? Yes, it might uh, require some subsidy and so on, but so what? And that's at the root of our problem. We've never understood that the idea of providing a bus service or a train service is not a commercial proposition, right? It's about providing a service in the same way that all sorts of other things, whether it's the police or the NHS or 
the army or whatever are public services and transport ought to be seen in that respect. And yet when you put forward an idea for a new bus route or a new rail service or whatever, it's always seen in commercial terms. Will it make enough money to pay its way? That's not the right question. The right question should be, does this provide a, a very important service for lots of people whose lives are improved by it? And it creates all sorts of what uh, economists call externalities. In other words, benefits for society as a whole. You, uh, you mentioned HS2 before um, and the sort of ongoing saga around that. Given the hammering that the public finances have taken during the COVID recession, do you think the era of those sort of big projects, large scale investments is over? Uh, well, HS2 seems to manage to survive whatever kind of declining business case it has. You know, it's seen as a sort of grand projet, as you know, something uh, that uh, politicians kind of you know feel proud of, feel they're making a difference. But when you look at the detail of uh, the scheme, it's really not worth the candle, and you know, the costs are going to soar, and the public are not particularly. Uh, support of it. So, uh, look, I think it's horses for courses. I think there are some uh, uh, schemes that are worthwhile. I've, I've written a book about Crossrail, uh, uh, which is the, the new route in, in London. And, and certainly, I think uh, that is a valid scheme, even though, of course, the, in the post-COVID world, it's not going to get as heavily used as it would have done if we haven't had uh, this pandemic. But nevertheless, it's a fantastic project. It's it's. Uh, it will make uh, people will be astounded at the, the size of the uh, stations and, and their uh, architectural merit and, and so on. And, and it will it's a world class railway and it is worth doing that uh, some of the time. But by and large, it is the less sexy, smaller schemes that would make the most difference. Uh, around uh, our transport system and, and and hundreds and hundreds of those across the country rather than kind of one big grand projet. Talking there of Crossrail and focusing sort of back attention on London, um, you tweeted yesterday that the second leg of that Crossrail 2 is, quote, effectively dead because of the TfL bailout. Um, can you just remind listeners what was planned for that second instalment of Crossrail and what do you think is the impact of us losing it? Well, that's a long-term scheme, which used to be called the Chelsea-Hackney line, but uh, has then become something rather uh, longer going, maybe between uh, somewhere like Tooting uh, in the south up to Tottenham and, and beyond in the north. So so a long southwest to northeast rail line, largely under London, at a cost of, estimated at the moment, around uh, $30, 30 billion. In many respects, it was it was a, a way of regenerating various areas, uh, particularly in northeast London, where uh, are poorly served by transport. And uh, the hope was that it would generate a lot of kind of extra housing in in those areas, giving people uh, quick access into the city, and so long and so on. I mean, I said it's dead. In response, uh, the people at TfL have said, "Well, it's not quite dead. It's just uh, mothballed." In the same way that actually Crossrail One was mothballed for about ten years at one point. But I, you know, it, it, you'd have to have a very sort of optimistic crystal ball to think that we're going to get to a situation where a major transport scheme in London like that is going to get built, given. Uh, uh, the bailout, given the need for investing in the, the tube, I mean, which still has kind of 30, 40 year old trains, uh, old signaling systems, and all that's going to have to be invested in. 
particularly as there is a political climate now, which I think will be exacerbated post-pandemic, that London gets all the goodies and the benefits um, and the North doesn't. And you know, given the Red Wall kind of issues and stuff, I, I think we have to uh, recognise that the idea of Crossrail 2 is, you know, if not dead, kicked into very long grass. Staying with uh, London, your old adversary for the Labour London Mayor nomination, uh, Sadiq Khan, has just agreed a temporary £1.8 billion bailout package for TfL. Is this really the significant win that Khan is claiming? And how do you think he's doing overall as transport mayor? Well, uh, you have to think that the government is bit between a rock and a hard place because the idea that you can allow TfL to go bust and say, oops, we can't run any of these bus services, we can't run the tube and, uh, uh, and the trams and so on, is completely fanciful. So, so in a way, it has them over a barrel. Uh, he negotiated quite effectively because uh, they wanted to impose kind of heavy fares rises and maybe a London-wide congestion charge and so on. And and, uh, because many Tory uh, MPs in London didn't like that idea, that has been uh, killed off. The problem is that we're going to get to a situation where uh, London is permanently uh, you know, every year or so, having to go on bended knees to the government and say, please, sir, can we have some more uh, money? And that's not a satisfactory situation. And, and there needs to be a, a permanent solution to uh, the funding. Remember that uniquely of anywhere, any city in the world like this, by cutting the grants to TfL, TfL was basically supposed to run its trains and buses without any subsidy from central government at all. And that's just not realistic. If you're providing that sort of, you know, 24-7 uh, service uh, to 7, 8 million people, whatever it is, you just need uh, financial support to do it. And that, that's not because of inefficiency or anything. It's just because it's a very expensive thing to do. No city in the world kind of funds it entirely from uh, the fare box. And that's what, oddly enough, we just reached a situation where they were expecting uh, TfL to fund everything from the fare box. Um, and then we got the pandemic, which uh, absolutely made that impossible. And do you think that political sort of struggle is fundamentally shaping the government's relationship to TfL? Is it seen as a way of clipping the wings of a fairly independent Labour mayoralty and a left-leaning city? Uh, I, I, there's no doubt about that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a, a nasty little spiteful battle. Uh, and Sadiq, you know, Sadiq has not been fantastic in relation to transport. I mean, I'm a Labour man, but I would uh, you know, be quite critical of the fact that I don't think that He's been adventurous enough. I, I don't think he's taken on uh, the vested interest of some of the local boroughs sufficiently. He's failed to look at the idea of road pricing across London, which you know, certainly within a, a larger area than just uh, Zone 1 really should, you know, should be uh, considered and so on. So I don't think he's been fantastic. But you know, we're, we are very strongly a Labour city now. You know, he's polling at around... 48% numbers to, 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 to die for, really. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of antagonism from the Prime Minister, who, of course, once did his job and, and vaguely knows his way around it. So this is just symptomatic of what should not be happening. I mean, London's transport system is far too important uh, to be a political football between 
you know, a mayor and an ex-mayor. And just finally, we've got probably three to four more years of this government. Given that time frame, if you could get one message through to Grant Shapps, the current Secretary of State for Transport, what would it be? Uh, I think I have two, actually. I, I think I'd one say, look, in terms of the railways, just give up on the idea that the private sector should be involved. Just renationalize them, and more importantly, bring them all together and within an organization that you might want to call British Rail, but you probably won't. And in terms of the, of the smaller stuff we're talking about, I would say that we should have a serious pro-cycling, pro-walking, pro-public transport policy for our towns and cities. And you know, forget the idea of sort of making it commercial and uh, you know, ensuring that uh, innovations pay for themselves and so on, and actually have a radical policy of, of making our towns and cities more livable through better public transport systems, cycle lanes and whatever. Christian Walmart, thank you so much for joining me today on The Bunker. Hope to see you again soon. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. We'd start your week on Mondays and the main panel show on Tuesdays. Don't forget you can back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.